0: Turning back again tonight to the Book of Matthew and the Chapter six, Matthew's Gospel and the Sixth Chapter. And for those that have been out recently, you will know that at our September week prayer on the Monday, Wednesday and Friday nights. We turn to Matthew 6, and we looked at it again last Wednesday evening, and now we're coming to it again. So, we'll start reading at verse 1. Matthew 6 and verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, Do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And that final verse that we have read just now, verse 8, will be the topic. our discussion tonight. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Again, let's bow briefly in prayer. Our gracious Father, again we look to Thee. We pray that as we come to handle Thy Word that we will know Thy direction, and we will know Much of thy merciful grace. So speak to all of our hearts, lead us in this subject, this vital subject of prayer in the closet, when we have shut our door, praying to our Father in secret, and we thank thee that our Father who sees in secret shall reward us openly. But Lord, as we look to this particular part of this passage this evening, We pray that I will come and open our hearts to Thy Word, and teach us, Lord, to understand that our Father, He knoweth what things we have need of, even before we ask Him. And may that Word be sealed not only to our instruction, but to our comfort, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Prayer is a battleground. And anybody who is engaged in it, I know that we all shall, you will readily testify that prayer is a battleground. But if we use battle jest on this battlefield of prayer, then we're going to be doomed to failure. Well, what do we mean by this word? battle o Does it mean battle-logic? Does it mean jesting in battle? It certainly doesn't. What it is is an obscure, quite an obscure Greek word. You only find it used once in the New Testament. Of course, in the Greek New Testament, we have it translated in our English Bible here in Matthew 6 and the verse 7, and the word is vain repetitions. That is, in the Greek, battle jest. So this strange word translated vain repetitions in our authorized version, whenever William Tyndale, a Bible translator, came to the Greek back in 1535, and he looked at this word, he then wanted to translate it, and he translated it as this, babble over much. Martin Luther producing his German Bible would have had these equivalent words. It was blattering away was the terminology that he used to translate that. And John Knox, he used these terms. He uses many phrases. This particular person who was used to go down the line of battle o' jest. I think Tyndale's translation is just about as good as any of them, even better probably than most babble over much. Very clearly, our Lord is touching on the language of prayer in this particular instance, and He's telling us, do not be babbling over much, discouraging much redundant, vain speaking, but there is no way that our Lord ever discouraged much praying. What Spurgeon said is very interesting. Not length, but strength is desirable, and a good reason why this battle of jest should be banished from our praying is simply this: it is what the heathen practice, and that's pointed out to us in the passage here, and we have an example of that on Mount Carmel, where we have the priests and the prophets of Baal all joined together in empty and in vain repetition. First Kings eighteen and the verse twenty-six. And again, in Acts 19 and 34, a New Testament example of that very same thing. But most importantly, what it's doing is those who are engaging in these vain repetitions, they have a mistaken concept of God. And our Lord puts His finger on that mistaken concept when He says, "'But when ye pray,' Use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. In other words, if we keep multiplying the words, if we keep piling up the expressions, then by just talking, 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 that is going to be the key to being heard. Our Lord says rather, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth What things ye have need of, before ye ask him. And that's an amazing promise, and comes, I trust, with astounding comfort onto our hearts tonight. Those final words in Matthew 6 and verse 8, Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of, before ye ask him. So, the first comment we're going to make in the mean tonight is simply this, Our Father knows what we have need of exactly. Our Father knows what we have need of exactly. Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. So, what's happening here in the text? We're being catapulted right into the realm of omniscience, the fact that God knows all things, that there is nothing hidden from his view. And of course, we believe that, and we teach that, the theologian's theologians term, that he is omniscient. He knows our sins. Most men today do not think like that. And so, in Psalm 94 the verse 7, there are those who sin, and yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. And God has an answer for those who say that. In verse 9 of the same psalm, he that formed the eye, shall he not see? And we have many examples in Scripture Going right back into the earliest chapters, Genesis 3, the verse 8 to 11, we have Adam, and he find out God knows our sins. We have Cain as well in Genesis 4 and 10. We have another example further on in Genesis, chapter 16, verse 7, verse 13. Hagar exclaims, Thy God seest me. And of course, that revelation of the sin of Achan that we have in Joshua chapter 7 detailed for us. I don't think we need to be reminded of our Lord's knowledge in this regard. It was said of Christ in John 2 and 25, and again in Mark 7 to verse 21 and 22, He needeth not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And to prove that he did know what was in us, our Lord says in Mark 7, 4, From within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And so, our Lord is proving here that He knows the transgressions of men. Not only that, He knows our thoughts, I'm going to leave two texts of Scripture before us in this regard. Matthew 12 and verse 25 is 1, and Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Again, the second text that I said I'd bring is Luke 6 and verse 8. But he knew their thoughts, and said to the man which had the withered hand, "'Rise up, and stand forth in the midst.' And he arose, and stood forth." So, if ever we needed a reminder, and of course, as sinners, we always do, Christ knows our sins. He also knows our sorrows. Maybe you sing the lines over to yourself. It could well be a favorite hymn or part of a hymn. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. I must confess that I do like those words but if I was going to be pressed for him going down the same kind of a line that I would class a particular favorite, then it's one by S. M. I. Henry. I know my heavenly Father knows the storms that would my way oppose, but he can drive the clouds away and turn my darkness into day. I know my Heavenly Father knows the BAM I need to soothe my woes, and with His touch of love divine, He heals this wounded soul of mine. I know my Heavenly Father knows how frail I am to meet my foes, but He my cause will e'er defend, uphold and keep me to the end. And then the chorus He knows. He knows the storms that would my way oppose. He knows, he knows, and tempers every wind that blows. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that particular hymn would have been sung years ago, maybe more than once, in the martyrs here in the main building at Easter convention time by a singer from Lisbon, same namesake as me, Hubie Brown. He knows and tempers every wind that blows. One of the great old preachers of a former age, Octavius Winslow, he said, Isolated and solitary, poor and mean as you may be, that God, the great, the holy Lord God, should think of you, notice you, regard you. Set his heart upon you. That his thoughts, more precious than oceans, gems, and more numerous than the sands which belt it, should cluster around you, is a truth, while nigh overwhelming with its mightiness. And yet, so it is. Now, wasn't David so aware of that? And in that psalm, where he talked about the knowledge of God, His omniscience, that famous psalm one hundred and thirty-nine, in verse seventeen and eighteen, he says, "How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them? If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand." He knows our sins. He knows our sorrows. He knows as well our supplies, and there is no doubt that he knows that. And of course, I should have a C rather than a B there. Wonderful what you notice when it just comes immediately on screen, and you're thinking we've a sin, sorrows, and now we should be on C for supplies, but there we are. Again, that's Psalm 139. You could write over the top of it Two words in English, thy knowest. And the psalmist goes on to say that he knows my down-sitting, mine uprising, my thoughts afar off, my path and my lying down, all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. Thine eye did see my substance yet being perfect, and in thy book all my members were written. And no wonder, having explored this topic of the Lord's knowledge of me, David cries out in verse 6 of that same psalm, "'Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it.'" Then we have Peter as well. And in John 21 in the verse 17… He that is Christ saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. thou knowest that I love thee. And so we bring all of these expressions back. And we tie them into our verse tonight in Matthew 6, in the verse 8, Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And so we've got spiritual cupboards, and we're looking for supplies. And our Lord just knows, without even opening the door, whether we're like old Mrs. Hubbard or not. He has full knowledge of our needs. And better than that, he has promised that he will provide. In fact, I look to his name, and I find in his name the pledge that he will provide. In Genesis 22 and the verse 13 and 14, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of a son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, or otherwise translated, no doubt in the margin, the Lord will provide. Didn't we sing tonight? All you may need, He will provide. God will take care of you. Trust him, and you will be satisfied. God will take care of you. Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Then that's the first point tonight. Our Father knows what we have need of exactly. But then secondly, our Father knows what we have need of experimentally. Experimentally. He knows all of our individual, personal needs. Your Father knoweth, what do we read here? What things ye have need of. Ye have need of. Now, that's rather amazing as well. Because when we face up to facts, the truth of the matter is, we do not know half what we need, like the Lord himself does, We don't know a fraction of what we need like the Lord does. Oftentimes, we're going through life, and we are blind to our own needs. And maybe we assume, well, the necessities are in place. Let's zoom off in search of some luxuries and add them to what we have. And maybe we have missed essential needs along the way like that church in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. In verse 14 and 17 and 18, we read of it, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, because thou sayest. This was their assessment about their needs. Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, did our Lord's assessment tally with their own? It was way off in terms of what they assessed. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Our Lord says, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. You haven't understood these things, our Lord is saying. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou may see." never feel to be impressed and humbled as well. By the way, God shows His grace in a situation. The Lord here introduces Himself to this church as the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And He's saying right away that I have the supplies, you people in Laodicea need I am the creator of all things, the instigator of everything, the controller of all. He's telling us as well that I am the faithful and true witness. What I am saying is absolutely true, a non-negotiable verdict. When you think of those compelling words that we've read in verse 18 and again in 20 and 21, I counsel thee buy of me. I stand at the door and knock, hear my voice, open the door. I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. And if the Lord is coming and supping with us, there's not going to be any shortage in supplies there. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. And I'm being struck all the way through here that what the Lord is telling me is this, that I earnestly desire to convey these blessings to you to bring them to you in abundance. He knows what we have need of. They evidently did not. And how often are we like the Laodiceans? I think of what our Lord said in Luke 11, verse 9 to 13, similar context. He's encouraging us, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you.'" For everyone that asketh, receiveth. The promise here is, the supplies will be given. He that seeketh, findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And then saying, that when I am aware of your need, as I always am, I'm not going to shortchange you or cheat you. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, our Lord concludes, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And so one of these primary lessons is... God supplies according to our needs. He doesn't look down, see the need, then in some callous, cynical, calculating way, gives us something else instead, something that far from alleviating the need that we have is maybe going to serve to make it more acute than what it was we do need to try and calculate how much we depend upon Him, how impoverished we would be if the blessings we need did not come, how much greater danger and evil would we be in, how deprived our spiritual experience would be, how many more needs would begin to develop out of the denial of the need that was necessary, the good thing, the helpful thing, the beneficial thing that we really required, how much we depend upon the Lord for our blessings. And do you know something? The more conscious we become of our needs, the more earnestly, determinately, powerfully, genuinely, urgently we are going to cry to God in that closet door closed, praying to her Father in secret, Lord, I need these particular requirements met. A man or woman who finds themselves maybe stranded in a fog many miles from home will be out there in the coldness and obscurity, and they'll be longing if only we could get to our own fire here and into bed for the, the warmth and the feeling of protection. Anybody is out in a terrible storm in a winter's night, and they've no protection from rain and wind in that storm. They'll be longing for that warm winter clothing they knew was lying at home that they left behind them. They have not need preparation for these kind of conditions. And the child of God, when he becomes aware of his or her own nothingness, his own emptiness, his own great need of the blessing of God, when he's brought onto the ground that Ezra was on, in Ezra 9, in the verse 6, and Ezra said, "Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses growing up unto the heavens. When he has understood that he must approach God exactly in the way that Abraham did in Genesis 18, in verse 27, and Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but Dust and ashes. When we come to realise what our Saviour was driving home in John fifteen and five, without me ye can do nothing. Then we're going to be coming to Him in these words and say, Lord, we're resting on this promise. Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. So, the first thought, our Father knows what we have need of exactly. He has knowledge of what we have need of experimentally. And finally, we need to express what we have need of expectantly. We need to express what we do have need of expectantly. And there's that implication here in our text, that those needs that I have, that you have, that our Father knows we have, that we should search them out. Name them. Just like naming our blessings, naming our needs. Asking for them. Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. How am I ever going to work out? what my greatest needs are. Well, I'm not left alone on that. In Romans 8, verse 26 and 27, I'm told the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings or with those promptings that cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so I am so glad when I come to pray that I have someone to prompt me in prayer to push me forward, propel me, bring to my mind, get me onto the ground of knowledge here as to what I should be praying for. And what does he do? He brings me again and again to this book. He directs us to the promises that we have on its pages. It has been said, and I know the print and screen is small now, but he shows us where our deficiencies are, what our sins are, and what our necessities are. He sheds a light upon our condition and makes us feel deeply our helplessness, sinfulness, and dire poverty. And then he casts the same light upon the promises of the Word and lays home to the heart that very text that was intended to meet the occasion, the precise promise which was framed with foresight of our present distress. Now, do we believe that? Have we experienced this? Here's the need. Here's the predicament. Ah, but here's the precise promise that has been framed with foresight of that present distress that we have. An old saint termed prayer as bombarda Christianorum. What did he mean? Prayer is that Christian's great gun that he uses to bombard heaven. The gun is prayer. The promises, if you like, are the cannon balls. Faith wields the gun into position, And lights the fuse, bombarda, Christianorum, bombard heaven with heaven's promises. And so we have that encouragement in Ezekiel 34 and the verse 26 where God says, And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing, and take a promise like that, and use that as the big cannon ball, and put it into the cannon, and take aim, and fire it right at the tender heart of God, for it is His promise, His Word. Solomon did that in First Kings 8 and verse 26, And now, O God of Israel, let Thy Word, I pray Thee, be verified, which thou speakest. And over every single promise of God, we can take that prayer of Solomon, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest. One of the favorite quotes that I like to remember from the Puritan era is one by Thomas Manton. Manton tells us, one way to get comfort is to plead the promise of God in prayer, show him his handwriting, God is tender of his word. Now, modern man, in his great wisdom, he's moved way beyond this realm, hasn't he? And he might say, you know, prayer, it's a nice little thing to do. It's maybe an exceptionally good exercise. It activates the psychic part of a man. It's good for the lungs. It's probably good for the body and good for the mind as well. But we mustn't ever presume that we're going to ever hear an answer back to those petitions that we make. They're not going to have, modern man will say, the slightest impression upon God. What cynical nonsense. Dr. Adam Clarke, in his autobiography, tells a story that respected John Wesley, the evangelist. And they, Clark and Wesley, were both on their way back to England by ship, when wind had caused some great delay. Wesley was reading, and the people around were beginning to get agitated, and more agitated by the moment. And they were pointing to the confusion it was about, and the frustration of others on board. And they went to Wesley, and they said, aren't you aware of all of our fears, of the terrible weather that's enveloping all of us here? And Wesley just said, then, let us go to prayer. After Dr. Clark had prayed, Wesley broke out, in great supplication that seemed to be more, as Clark noted, like the offering of sheer faith rather than just a mere desire. Almighty and everlasting God, he cried. Thou hast sway everywhere, and all things serve the purpose of thy will. Thou holdest the winds in thy fists, and sitteth upon the water floods, and reignest a king forever. Command these winds and these waves, that they obey thee, and take us speedily and safely to the haven whither we go. And everybody around felt the power of that petition. Wesley rose from his knees, didn't make a comment, simply took up the book that had been reading formally, continued reading, Dr. Clark returned to the deck, and to his surprise, he found the vessel under seal, holding to her proper course. It was great expectation in prayer. Praise God, he does exist. He does live. He lives in the power of an endless life. He does hear the pleadings of his people called by his name. He does answer their prayers and know for faith to see that every time we come to pray. Oh, to be so convinced of his ability to answer prayer that we could rest upon the words of the poet. Depend on him. Thou canst not feel. Make all thy wants and wishes known. Fear not. His merits must prevail. Ask what thou wilt. It shall be done. The language of James 1, 6, and 7, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Again, in Matthew 9, in the verse 37 and 38, in Matthew 10, and the verse 1, we have our Lord and he's tapping the shoulders of his disciples, and he's saying, do you know what? I have got you praying. Now prepare to be the answer to your own prayers. And he was urging his disciples, pray. Look at the harvest fields. Pray for laborers. That's the need. The harvest truly is great but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And they're praying, and they're praying from our Lord's instruction here. And in Matthew 10 and 1, we have this recorded. And when he had called unto him, his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. In other words, our Lord took them, and He made each and every single one of them the answer to their own prayers. Are we willing to be that? Or are we always and only praying that, Lord, stir somebody up, as long as it's not me, Lord, there's a need that needs met. Get somebody to see that need. Whenever, obviously, our eyes have been opened already to see it. And God has given us energy to answer our own prayer. The father was praying at home that the Lord would meet the needs of the poor. And when he finished, his little son said, Daddy, I wish I had your money. Why, son, the father said. He said, because I would answer your prayers for you. You prayed that the poor might be helped. And I know you could do it very well with your money. May we be willing to be the Lord's instrument in this place. Let's take the text to heart in Matthew 6 and 8. Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him may even be the case, as Isaiah 65 and 24 records, and it shall come to pass, that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Let's bow together in prayer.